The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. We find ourselves in chapter 13 tonight. The title of my message for you this evening is Love and Betrayal which just happen to be the two predominant themes that emerge from our story, love and betrayal. Our story begins with Judas's betrayal, and it ends with Jesus predicting Peter's betrayal. And then sandwiched between those two stories, we have Jesus talking about the absolute necessity of love. So love and betrayal. And by the way, I don't think it's an accident that John puts these stories of Judas and Peter side by side, because these two guys are are similar in several key regards. They were both disciples of Jesus. They both took part in Jesus' ministry. They both failed the Lord miserably, and then they both felt bad about what they had done. However, this is where their paths diverge. Whereas one of them was restored and went on to become a leader in the early church, the other one went out and hung himself and was lost forever. In fact, speaking of Judas Iscariot, Jesus said this. He says, it would have been better for that man if he had never been born. So two men on the seemingly similar path, but then they take a fork in the road and go in opposite directions. What was the difference between these two men? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. And with that, let's go ahead and begin reading there in John 13. Pick up with me in verse 18. It says, I am not, this is Jesus speaking here, by the way. He says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those who I've chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit, and he testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, by the way, that's John, the author of this gospel, talking about himself. He's far too humble to ever refer to himself by name, so he simply uses this moniker, I'm just the one Jesus loved, so you all know who I'm talking about. And so the one Jesus loved, a.k.a. John, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple, and he said, ask him which one he means. And leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And so Jesus told him, what are you about to do? Do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought he was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. So we read about this act 
of betrayal. And I want you to notice how John ends this section by drawing our attention to the fact that it was night when Judas went out from the room. And let's just be clear about one thing. The darkness that filled the night sky was symbolic of the darkness that filled Judas's heart in this moment as he literally partners with Satan. We're told that Satan literally inhabited him as he went out to betray the Lord. You know, there are certain names in history that have become infamous because of their wickedness. And and these names have become synonymous with pure evil. I'm talking about names like Hitler or Stalin and, of course, Judas Iscariot. We just had two baby dedications, and I love baby dedications, and uh, I got a couple more tomorrow, and they're just so much fun. But I've yet to meet the little baby that the parents have decided to name little Judas. You know, it's just one of those names. You haven't had someone come up and, oh, this is little Adolf Hitler. Oh, what a cutie. No, there are names that have been soiled and ruined for all of time because of the treachery that they're associated with. And certainly Judas would fall into that camp. But who was he? Where does he come from? And what's his story all about? Well, we, the scriptures don't really tell us how he became a disciple, so we're, we're left to guess. Evidently, at some point, Judas hears Jesus preach a sermon. Maybe he sees him perform a miracle, or maybe he was attracted to the large crowds that gathered around Jesus. At any rate, we know that at some point, Jesus approaches Judas and invites him to become one of his disciples. Now, let's stop for a moment and consider the rare gift, the incredible privilege that was given to Jesus, chosen by Jesus to be one of the 12 men that gets to spend three and a half years with him. Of all of human history, all the people who have ever lived, Jesus chose 12 to spend this time with him. And Judas was one of them, handpicked by the Lord. Think about what that meant. As a disciple, Judas would have had a front row seat to the entire ministry of Jesus. He would have seen Jesus preaching there on the the, the shores of the Galilee as he, he brought the Sermon on the Mount. He would have been there and participated in that miracle as Jesus multiplied the bread and the fishes and handed that to the the hungry crowd. He would have seen Jesus open blind eyes and and, and heal the leper and, and, and give hearing to those who were deaf. He would have seen Jesus raise the dead. Judas saw all of that. But he didn't just witness Jesus' ministry. He also got to participate in it. You see, when Jesus sent out the 12 to spread the good news, we can only assume that Judas went with them. Mark describes that ministry in this way. This is Mark chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Let's read this together out loud. It says, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. We have every reason to believe that Judas was among those who went out and performed this ministry. That he was casting out demons, that he was laying hands on the sick and anointing them with oil and that they were healed, that he was even preaching the gospel. Judas experienced all of that, and yet we know that he goes sideways. So where did Judas go wrong? Well, we aren't told specifically when his heart 
turned completely away from the Lord, but it seems to have happened early on. And we're given some clues into what went down. We know, for instance, that greed played a role in his downfall. Judas served as the treasurer for the the disciples. John is the one who tells us that here in our text. And we also know this from that story in John 12 when Mary took that that pound of ointment, that spike nard, and she broke the, the vase and she poured the contents out on Jesus' feet and began to rub his feet with her hair. And, and John tells us that Judas interjected and he said, this is a waste. By the way, worship like that will always be criticized by those on the outside of it, those who aren't participating in it. It looks weird and it seems wasteful to those on the outside. And so Judas criticizes Mary. He says, we could have taken the contents of that bottle and sold it for 300 denarii, and we could have given the money to the poor. But then John adds the following commentary. Judas only said this because he was in charge of the money bag, and he used to steal what was put into it. And so Judas was greedy, but notice how he pretended to care about the poor, which, as it turns out, was his greater sin. You see, Judas was not only greedy, Judas was a hypocrite. And even though he already betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver by the time he shares this meal with Jesus and the disciples, when Jesus speaks up and he says, one of you is going to betray me, we know that they all began to ask, Lord, is it I? Is it I? And Judas, in a feigned attempt at trying to sound holy, asks along with the other 12, is it I, Lord? knowing full well that it was him. He feigned shock at the thought that someone might betray the Lord, even though at that very moment, the betrayal had already taken root in his heart. Matthew's gospel tells us that later that same night, Judas would lead a battalion of Roman soldiers into the garden of Gethsemane, where he would betray Jesus with, get this, a kiss. And by the way, in the original language, it suggests that he smothered Jesus with kisses. He calls him rabbi, and he begins to cover his face with kisses. Is there anything more intimate than a kiss? And to note that Judas, rather, hid the greatest betrayal this world has ever seen behind an act of intense intimacy. This is the height, the apex of hypocrisy. By the way, the word hypocrite, it it speaks, it comes to us from the Greek theater, and it it refers to those actors who would wear different masks during different scenes of a play so that they could be different roles. That was Judas. Who he was on the outside was one way, and it didn't accurately reflect who he was on the inside. And I know what that feels like because there was a time in my life when I played the part of a hypocrite and I would sit in the church and I would sing the songs, but in my heart, I knew that I was far from the Lord and I wasn't walking with the Lord at all. And there are some people like that in the church, people who are hypocrites. And yet it's, it's, it's noteworthy that while Judas was able to basically pull the wool over the eyes of all the other disciples, He never succeeded in fooling Jesus. And by the way, that's always true. It's been said, you can fool some of the people all the time and all the people some of the time, but you'll never fool Jesus. He saw right through the charade and the facade, and he knew from the beginning who was going to betray him. Yet notably, he never allowed that to change the way he treated Judas. 
You see, when Judas went out that night, he left with clean feet. Why? Because Jesus had washed them in love. He left that night with a full stomach. Why? Because Jesus had dipped the bread in the sop and he had given it to Judas. Judas was loved by Jesus. And even when he came to betray him, Jesus said, friend, do you betray me with a kiss? And it's so unfathomable to think that Judas, even in that moment of treachery, could turn away from the Lord. It was as though Jesus was giving him one last chance to repent, but he never did. What do we learn from Judas? A couple of key things. Number one, Judas' story lets us know that Jesus knows what it feels like to be betrayed. Maybe you're here this evening and, and, and your heart is wounded because Someone you loved, someone that you care for, you feel like they've stabbed you in the back. They've turned on you. And Jesus wants you to know that he knows firsthand what that pain feels like. But more importantly, not only can he empathize with you in that pain, but he can minister to you in it. And his love for Judas becomes a model for each of us on how to respond in those instances where we've been betrayed. But secondly, Judas's story reminds us that nearness to Jesus is not the same thing as having a relationship with Jesus. Let me say it like this. <clears throat> I think it's great that we're here on a Saturday evening in church, but make no mistake about it, being in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car or being in McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. It's great that you're here, but just because you were water baptized or because you volunteer or because you sing songs or pray, these are great things, but they don't make you a believer. And Judas is proof of that. He was near the Lord. He did ministry with the Lord, but he wasn't in love with Jesus. And one of the more sobering statements that you'll find anywhere in the Bible Jesus says it like this. This is Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I can't help but see Judas in this passage. I prophesied. I proclaimed the good news. I cast out demons in your name. I performed miracles. And Jesus says, but I never knew you. I never knew you. I never knew you. And so at the end of the day, what it comes down to is our hearts and whether or not there's been a moment in time when we've given our hearts and our life to Jesus and that we've surrendered to him in that way. Judas never knew Jesus. And that's what makes his story such a great tragedy, to come so close and yet still be so far away from the kingdom of heaven. That's Judas's story. Well, Jesus goes on in verse 31. When he was gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Wow. 
There's one word that Jesus uses five times in these two verses. He's very interested in this whole concept of being glorified, finding glory in what he was about to go through. Now, what is Jesus connecting his own glorification to here? That was sparked by Judas's withdrawal. And, and, and as Judas leaves, it sets in motion this whole series of events that will culminate in the cross. And so it's curious, isn't it? That Jesus would associate the cross with glory. You wouldn't think to connect those two things, right? From a worldly perspective, the cross is anything but glorious. If anything, it is the epitome of humiliation and shame. There was no worse way to die in the ancient world than to be stripped naked, to be flogged, and then to be nailed to a cross. It was considered a curse. But notice from Jesus' vantage point, rather from heaven's perspective, the cross becomes the epitome of glory. Let's dig into that. Why is that so? Well, it's because Jesus understands that the cross is the very means by which the defeat of Satan, sin, hell, and death would come. The cross is where sin was paid for. It's where God's wrath was satisfied. You see, we've incurred the wrath of God because of our sin, but then God sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to pay for those sins. And so his wrath was satisfied. It's where justice and mercy kissed. It's where grace and love are displayed and revealed. And if Satan had known any of this, then he never would have gone through with the cross. Do you realize that? If he realized that when he crucified the Lord of glory, that he was sealing his own fate, he never would have done it. He thought that the crucifixion was his greatest victory, but it turned out to be his ultimate defeat. <laughs> when he incited those Roman soldiers to, to flog Jesus, if he had known that when he incited the soldiers to place that crown of thorns on his scalp until blood ran down his face, if he had known what he was doing then when he pierced Jesus' hands and his feet and ultimately his side, if he had known that what he was doing was fulfilling the purposes and the plans of God to redeem humanity back to God, he never would have gone through with it. But he was forced into it because it was all part of God's preordained plan. And so Jesus says, God's about to be glorified. There is glory in the cross of Jesus. And then he, as this, the weight of what he's saying is still kind of lingering in the air. He goes on and he says this in verse 33, my children, I'll be with you only a little longer and you'll look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I am going you cannot come. Think of how this would have landed on their hearts. Jesus says, oh, little children. By the way, this is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus uses this phrase, little children. And, and he softens what he's about to say with those words because he knew how it was going to hit them like a ton of bricks. I'm going away, Jesus says. And where I'm going, you can't come. Leaving us? What do you mean, Jesus? 
These guys had come to rely on Jesus for everything. He provided for all of their needs. He would stand in defense of them with the religious leaders. If anyone was sick, he would heal them. If anyone had need, he would satisfy their need. Jesus had become their all in all, and now he tells them he's leaving. It didn't make sense. And, and while they're, they're still experiencing the shock wave of that hit, Jesus goes on to say this in verse 34, a new command I'm giving to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So now Jesus transitions and he begins to talk about the way of love. This is a radical new command that Jesus gives, a new command to love one another. Now, This is a real command. It's not a suggestion. It's not something that if you feel up to it. No, no, this has all the emphasis and carries all the weight of any of the other commands that you'll read about in Scripture. By the way, there are some 613 commands that you'll find in the Old Testament. That includes, of course, the the top 10, the 10 commandments that was given by God to Moses there on top of Mount Sinai that he he wrote with his own finger on the two tablets of stone. And so you have 613 commands. And so how are we to take this command? Is it just another one? Is it the 614th? Or perhaps is this to replace or nullify all of those other ones? And the answer, of course, is no. This command isn't given to to replace. It's not there to nullify, nor is it there to add to what was been shared or given in the Old Testament, but rather this command, it helps to fulfill and it encapsulates all the other commands. But the funny thing about this command, this new command, is that it's not really new. (laughs) You can go all the way back to the book of Leviticus. And there God speaks through Moses. And this is what he says. Listen to this. This is Leviticus 19.18. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We're familiar with that that command, and certainly so was Jesus. He knew that, that, that command well. In fact, he even quoted it on one occasion to a lawyer who asked him, what was the most important command? And Jesus responded, he said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets are contained in these two commandments. So Jesus clearly knew that that command already existed. So in what sense is it new? And the answer is, Jesus adds the qualifier, love one another as I have loved you. And that's what takes it to a whole nother level. It raises the bar and sets a new standard for how we, as his followers, are to love one another. And this is a completely new and foreign type of love. It's certainly different than the kind of love that we experience and are used to in this world. Worldly love, or the love we encounter here in this world, is often fickle, it's shallow, it ebbs and it flows based on how we feel. Oftentimes we'll hear people talking about falling into love. Oh, I'm in love. I fell in love. Or I've fallen out of love like it's a ditch that you fall into on the side of the road. 
And the way Jesus loved his disciples introduced a whole new measure and a whole new way to love. And, and it would take us, you know, not only all of tonight, but the rest of our lives to explore all of the, the nuances of the ways that he loved his disciples. But I want to highlight three things that I think are specific to the way Jesus loved his disciples. Number one. If we're to love like Jesus, that means loving impartially. Jesus loved them impartially. What do I mean by that? Well, the impartiality of Jesus' love, I mean, it could be seen. It was evidenced just in the faces of the men that were standing around Jesus that very night. Think of who was standing there in his midst. These weren't the the best and the brightest. They weren't the sharpest or the smartest. These were fishermen. These were tax collectors. These were zealots. These were social misfits and outcasts. And yet Jesus loved them each individually. He loved them impartially, not based on what they could provide for him or how they could elevate his his status. He just loved them because he loved them. And to love like Jesus is to love impartially. Secondly, he loved them sacrificially. Jesus didn't just tell them that he loved them, but he showed them with deeds and actions. On that very night, what's the context of this whole conversation? Jesus was there with the disciples, and he had just washed their stinky feet. And so he showed them in deeds what love looks like. You know, poets and Authors and songwriters are really great at finding new expressions and ways of describing love. But but love isn't a noun. Biblical love is a verb. It's an action word. And talk is cheap, which is why John, in his epistle, which he would go on to write, would say this. This is 1 John 3.18. Let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. It's easy to say, I love you, but it's a whole nother layer of love to love sacrificially and in action and in deed. That's the second way Jesus loved them. And then thirdly, he loved them totally. John begins chapter 13 by telling us that Jesus loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end. And we described how that word to the end could also be, it could also be translated, he loved them completely, or he loved them to the uttermost. In other words, his love for them never ran out, and it never ran dry. So this, friends, is how Jesus expects us to love one another. It's a tall order, is it not? His love is the pattern for how we ought to love. But I don't want to stop there. Because if we did, that would be not encouraging, that would be crushing. If all we had was Jesus' model of love, then I'm afraid we would just succumb to the weight of that impossible command. The truth of the matter is, we can't love like Jesus, at least not in our own strength. Our love, while his love is impartial and sacrificial and and total, our love is fickle and weak. That's why I'm thankful that his love is more than just a pattern for us to follow. It's also the power that allows us to live it out and to carry out the command. 
You see, we love others because he first loved us. The source of our love for each other is the love that God has for us. And so the whole key, if you want to get better at loving people, then you need to spend more time in the presence of your heavenly father. Because as you spend time with Jesus, it will just rub off on you and you'll become a more loving person. Amen? It's a little bit like this. If you take an ordinary piece of steel and you attach a magnet to it and you leave it there, after a while, what will happen is curious. That piece of metal will become magnetized so that it too becomes a magnet. Isn't that cool? And that's kind of what it's like when you hang out in the presence of Jesus. His love gets shed abroad. It gets poured out into you. And then you become a conduit of his love to those around you. And I love what Jesus goes on to say. He says, this is the command that you love one another. And then in verse 35, he says, and by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In other words, that's our calling card as Christians. Jesus didn't say that the world would know we are his by the beautiful churches that we build or by the incredible worship songs that we write or by the powerful sermons that we preach. He said the world would know we belong to him because of the love that we have for each other. Love, as it turns out, is what is meant to be the distinguishing feature of Jesus' followers. Now, how are we doing in that regard? Sadly, I don't know, and I'm not sure whether or not we're doing so great. See, today Christians are known for a lot of things, but I don't know if our love, the way we love one another, is at the top of that list. And we just need to be honest about that, right? According to a recent poll conducted by the Barna Research Group, half of young churchgoers said their perception of the church is that it is judgmental hypocritical and overly political. And I know that even as I heard that and read that, in my my spirit, I wanted to just like defend the church and like, that's not really true. And and they're just kind of misguided and they're misunderstanding. But, But hold on. What if instead of doing that, instead of getting all defensive, what if we took a good hard look at ourselves in the mirror and asked God to help us do a better job of just loving each other, because obviously there's a disconnect here. In his book, The Mark of the Christian, Francis Schaeffer notes that with this statement, Jesus gave the right to the world to judge whether you and I are born-again Christians on the basis of our observable love toward all Christians. That's pretty frightening, isn't it? Jesus turns to the world and he says, I have something to say to you. On the basis of my authority, I give you a right. You may judge whether or not an individual is Christian on the basis of the love that he shows to all Christians. Wow, that's heavy. That's a heavy statement that the world is watching us. You know, we often, especially pastors, we're fond of looking back with rose-colored lenses at the early church, and we marvel at the explosive growth that they experienced and how even by 
I don't know, the middle of the first century there in Acts chapter 17, the first disciples have gone out on these missionary journeys and and it talks about how by that early stage of church history, they'd already managed to turn the world upside down with the gospel. And we think, how did they do it? What was their secret? Was it their formulas, their programs, their services, their preaching, their processes? No, they didn't have any of that stuff. They didn't have any budgets. They didn't have any buildings. They didn't have any social media campaigns. So what was it? Well, the only thing they had was the gospel, the Holy Spirit, and a crazy love for each other that wooed and won the world around them. There's an early church father. He lived during the second century. His name was Tertullian. And he was a pastor in the northern region of Africa. And he lived during a time when Christians were being actively persecuted, marginalized, and ostracized. They were being fed to lions. They were being lit like human candles, all of that stuff. Yet at the same time, during that period of history, the church was experiencing tremendous growth. And the question was why? And in one of his letters, he imagined what someone on the outside's reaction might be upon stumbling into a church. And he said that they might be inclined to remark, see how they love one another. And that's what our love should do. It should cause the world to stand back with mouths agape in shock and in amazement. And it ought to draw them and woo them and attract them to us the way that we love each other. Now, of course, the thing that makes this hard, (laughs) let's just be honest, is that we're all people and people stink. People are sinners. Sometimes you'll meet people and they're like, ah, I had to leave that last church and it was just this, that, and the other, it was problems and there's just people there. And so they come to you know, this church or maybe they'll leave this church and go to another church and they kind of balance around. And I'm always inclined to tell these kinds of folks, you know, when you find that per- perfect church, whatever you do, don't join it. They look at me shocked and they say, why? And they say, because you'll ruin it, <laughs> you know. The truth of the matter is, you're just another hypocrite like the rest of us. We're all sinners. We're all flawed. We're all messed up from the floor up. We're all broken. We all need God's grace. And every church you've ever been to and every church you'll ever be a part of is filled with messed up, broken people. And that's where the challenge is, to love the unlovable, to love the way Jesus would love. And yet the same thing that makes it hard is the very thing that makes it powerful and beautiful. Jesus pointed out in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, if all you do is go around loving the people that love you, how are you any different from the world? But when you love your enemies, when you love those people who are EGR people, you know what I mean by EGR people, extra grace required people. We all have people like that in our lives. When you love those people, when you love people that are rough around the edges and, and, and they say the wrong thing at the wrong time and they rub you the wrong way and, and you love those people and you have radical grace for everyone and you're just welcoming and you speak the truth but you do it balanced with love, then wow, that is a community that will win the lost. You see, when the world sees a church full of messy, broken people from different places, 
coming from different backgrounds, different cultures, and yet they all come together under the banner of Jesus to worship one God. It's beautiful and it's powerful. So Jesus says, this is how I want you to live. But then Simon Peter, he's still stuck on that last part where Jesus said, I'm going to be leaving you. And so he says, let's back up in verse 36. Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I'm going, you can't follow now, but you will follow later. It's a preview of the cross that Peter would ultimately die on. That's where Jesus is headed, and that's where Peter would land. But he couldn't go there yet. He wasn't ready. And so Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Let's talk for a minute as we close about the difference between Peter and Judas. Before he talked about love, Jesus is talking about how I'm, I'm leaving, and, and Peter's hung up on that. He's like, you're not going anywhere that I don't go. He didn't like this, and so he protests. And then the Lord reiterates what he said earlier, and Peter is like, again, laying down the gauntlet. I'll die for you, and that's when Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster even crows, you're going to deny me. And we know how this story plays out. And by the way, when we get to John chapter 18, we'll look at Peter's denial in sequence more specifically. And we'll, we'll comb through that and, and pull out some things for ourselves. But at, at this point, what I'd like to do is spend a minute drawing out the differences between Peter and Judas because Jesus gives Peter two prophecies here. He not only tells him, you'll deny me, but notice he says, you can't follow me now, but you will follow me later. In other words, Peter, you're about to go through a dark night of the soul. You're about to pass through a trial, and you're going to fail me miserably, but you're going to be restored, and you're going to come back, and you will follow me again. So how did Peter succeed where Judas failed? Because at the end of the day, they both failed the Lord terribly. And in some respects, you could argue that Peter's sin was even worse than Judas's. And I say that because Peter, he denied the Lord three times, whereas Judas only did so once. And yet we know that Peter was ultimately restored while Judas was lost forever. What was the difference between Peter and Judas? And in a word, I think it's love. Love. You see, while both men failed the Lord, and both men went out and wept bitterly after doing so. Only Peter repented. And Peter repented because he loved the Lord deeply. And Judas did not. Judas was never a believer. Judas was a traitor and a betrayer from the beginning. He may have been impressed by the Lord. He may have been wowed by the Lord. But he never gave his heart to the Lord. And at the end of the day, that's what Jesus is after. He wants our hearts. If I can just skip ahead here for a moment or two, as we come to the end of John's gospel in chapter 21, after Peter has denied the Lord at the, the fire, warming himself at the fire of the enemy, denying the Lord three times. And, and so we find Jesus restoring Peter and he, he makes a fire and then he draws Peter into the fire. And just as it had been the scene of the crime, that was the very place where Jesus would restore Peter. And he asks him, not once, not twice, but three times. He says, Peter, do you love me? 
And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know all things. And the third time he asks him, John tells us that Peter was grieved in his spirit because he knows that Jesus is is reenacting the very scene of the, the night where he failed the Lord in spectacular fashion. He says, Lord, you know that I love you. And three times Jesus says, good. Then go and feed my sheep. There is a work for you to do. In other words, your history doesn't get to define your destiny. Yes, you've failed me in the past, but that has been washed and covered by the blood, and I'm reinstating you. I have a plan and a purpose for your life that nothing, not even your worst sin, can can undo. God's love for you is so great that it transcends even your greatest sin. And the beautiful thing about this story is each and every one of us can relate to Peter. We've all been Peter. We've all failed the Lord at various times and to varying degrees. But the good news is that God still has a plan for each and every one of us. And while Judas felt sorry for what he had done, Peter was repentant. Let me draw that distinction out. There is a difference between remorse and repentance. Because the Bible talks about how Judas went out and wept bitterly. He even returned and he said, I have betrayed innocent blood. And he took the money that those religious leaders had given to him and he threw it down at their feet. But then he ran out and in shame, he hung himself. And we know that he was lost forever. Why? Not because he had committed this unforgivable sin. Jesus would have forgiven him had he repented. And yet while Judas was remorseful, he never allowed that sorrow to translate to godly repentance. You see, there is a thing called worldly sorrow, which leads to death. It's this sorrow that says, oh, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry that I'm having to deal with the consequences of my actions. I'm sorry for the pain even that this caused. But I'm not repentant. To repent is to change directions. It's to agree with God that what you did was sin against a righteous and a holy God. And it's to agree with him. And then it's to run to the cross and to say, Jesus, I find forgiveness in the blood that you shed for me. And that's what Peter did. And that's what you and I are called to do. There is grace at the foot of the cross. There is forgiveness that flows from the fountain that stems from the foot of Calvary's cross. And so we go there over and over and over again. We have a story of two betrayers sandwiched by this powerful exhortation to love one another. And the difference between these two betrayers is one got the heart of the father and the other did not. One understood that it's all about love, and the other did not. There is a God in heaven that is madly and passionately and ferociously in love with everyone in this room. And you are not beyond his scope. You are not beyond his love. He loves you impartially. He loves you sacrificially. He loves you totally. And he demonstrated that love for you in the most powerful way when he sent his only begotten son to come to this earth to die on the cross in your place for your sins. And all you have to do is respond in faith to look at Jesus and to say, Jesus, I love you. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for this time and and opportunity to to be captured, to be 
wooed, to be won. Jesus, your heart and your desire is that none should be lost, but that all should come to repentance. And yet, Lord, you, you won't force yourself on us. You never stopped loving Judas. You never stopped reaching out. You never stopped making an effort. You never rejected Judas. Judas rejected you. And I feel like God wants me to tell someone in here tonight, you think God's mad at you. You think he's down on you. You think he's upset with you. And the fact of the matter is God has never stopped loving you, not even for a moment. Even in spite of the fact that he knows everything you've ever done, he knows your worst sins, he knows the things that nobody else knows, he knows about all the skeletons in your closet, and yet he's still moving towards you, he's not running from you. And the only people who end up in hell are those who choose to go there by trampling underfoot and thinking as an unworthy thing the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. No one will be in hell except those who choose to go there because they reject Jesus. My exhortation, my plea with everyone in here tonight is respond to the love of your creator. Respond to the whispers, the voice of your heavenly father. Respond to that knock on the door of your heart today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. If you hear his voice, open up your heart. Let him in. Watch him renew you and transform you and wash you and cleanse you and forgive you and fill you to overflowing with love so that you become a conduit of love and you begin to just pour out his love on everyone around you. If that's the desire of your heart, if you need to be restored like Peter, if you would need to be renewed, if you want to have your heart heart revive. Will you just raise your hand up? I want to pray with you tonight. Who in here says, I want that? Praise you. Praise you. Praise you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. So many saying, Lord, I want that. Let me just lead you in a prayer. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for taking my place. I receive the gift. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And lead me in the path that finds its way to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.